Simple Beep, episode 88, the iPad at 10. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this is a momentous milestone episode that we have that we are releasing here on the 10th anniversary, believe it or not, of the iPad's introduction. We have so many things to talk about to cover the 10-year span of the iPad's history from even before that momentous announcement. But before we do, as always, got to have a couple items of follow-up. Two episodes previously, we talked about the General Magic documentary and the the General Magic uh, company, Magic Cap Devices. And uh, since then, Cable Sasser pointed out on Twitter that datarover.com, a website for... Uh, General Magic and the Magic Cap operating system is still live on the internet. You can go to datarover.com right now and poke through all kinds of General Magic related material, including, as he pointed out, a link at the bottom to register for General Magic's Magic Cap Workbench 1996. I wonder if there are any spots left. (laughs) Oh, I'm clicking on the link right now. Uh, it says that you can email them. I'm guessing that that goes to absolutely nowhere. It was a $195 registration fee before November 27th of 1996. It went up to 295 now, so we missed the early price. Too bad. Anyway, I love this website. It's one of those websites that was created in the 90s with the technology available at the time and is still just chugging along. I love it when you load up a page that has like default format tables with the the little embossed borders that I'm still surprised actually render in modern web browsers with that same kind of formatting. It's like the furthest backwards compatibility of the web is that if you put in a, a table tag and don't put any styling on it, you get these little raised borders. And I just feel like someday that's going to go away. So we should appreciate it while it lasts. I mean, heck, um, I was visiting my parents last month and we pulled out an old iBook that used to be mine and that my mom used for a while and it booted up, which was great. And I tried to use the internet at all on it. And it's just impossible because there's no way to browse HTTPS sites and just like everything is broken. So it's kind of amazing that these things that are so old that keep getting hosted well into the future, which is now the present, uh, still function the way that they do. This is a fun, fun little website. And of course, it loads blazingly fast. That's right. <laughs> One other thing, a uh, little piece of follow-up. This isn't follow-up in the sense of uh, people in the community tweeting or even getting links to s- sent to us. Just a happy, unhappy, <laughs> important coincidence that happened after our last episode. We posted our episode 87 on desktop publishing. And then just a few days later, there was some uh, momentous, I I guess I've already used that word, even more momentous in the true sense, news in the United States. And it was uh, getting mocked up to go to press. And some people in the newsroom at Politico tweeted out a picture a an act, not a screenshot, like an actual photo of their computer uh, as they were mocking up their uh, front page for the next day in, of course, InDesign on a Mac. So there you go. The legacy of desktop publishing continues. And when you put this in our Slack as uh, something to bring up, 
I noticed also that at in the dock on the computer, there's the modern version of Fetch running. So just to tie all the kind of uh, classic Mac, desktop publishing, everything together in one photo of a screen. That's probably what I noticed more than the actual uh, InDesign window. It, may, it all makes sense now. All right, let's now get into the 10-year anniversary of the introduction of the iPad. But like Ed said, um, certainly in these 10 years since, we've learned a lot about what went into the development of the iPad. And there have been lots of opportunities for these stories to be shared along the way. So before we even get into the keynote and the actual day when the iPad was announced, there are uh, little pieces of the iPad's prehistory, if you will, to talk about. And the first thing is something that I think came out, started to come out um, during the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. Um, And it's the fact that the initial research and development into multi-touch as the next interface uh, user paradigm was not actually intended for small phone mobile devices. It was intended to be for kind of the next desktop personal computing experience something like a 10-inch tablet, um, only as they, as Apple progressed into uh, figuring out how to get, you know, like the, the really smooth scrolling and recognizing multiple inputs at the same time that uh, the, the phone space was exploding. Everyone was going to move into a, a more smartphone, always data connected type of device. And so they sized it down for the iPhone, only later to bring it back for the iPad that we're going to be talking about in this episode. It makes total sense with the name multi-touch, too, where multi-touch is truly multi-touch, not just one, not just two fingers. But I think it goes up to, what, nine or ten fingers can actually be sensed at a a time. But in terms of making the gestures, you can make – there are gestures on the iPad that have use all five fingers on one hand. And if you just lay your hand over your iPad, it kind of fits. Whereas if you lay your hand over your phone, even if you've got one of the max largest phones today, your hand is bigger than the display. And so just that concept of using all of your fingers was obviously tuned towards a screen that was big enough to accommodate all your fingers. Even now, most of the multi-touch gestures on the iPhone are basically two-finger gestures, things like pinching or tapping with two fingers uh, to perform different actions. I guess I actually tried this the other day, the new undo and redo gestures that are just from iOS 13 with three fingers do work on the iPhone, but I have the small size slash regular size iPhone 10, and it's still awkward to do. I totally understand where Apple was coming from just not even having a necessar- necessarily a complete product vision, but making more of a technology vision that multi-touch is a large format kind of technology. So we won't get into detail about all the different conversations that brought this part of the iPad development to light in this episode. But uh, if you're curious, you might want to go back in our own podcast to our episode 61, where we talked about the iPhone's 10-year anniversary, and there's some good stories linked there. Or if you're if you're of a more legal mind, I think some of this was exposed in the multi-year Apple versus Samsung litigation, because one of the specific uh, 
copying allegations was that Samsung's first tablet after the announcement of the iPad, the original Galaxy Tab, was very, very similar. <laughs> and I'm sure Apple wanted to establish that they had patents filed, um, certainly for multi-touch and also just the way that the device looked and felt, and maybe some prior art that reached all the way back. There have also been some more recent people coming out and talking about some of the the best devices of the last decade, which the iPad kind of opened. Um, so there's this New York Times article that was uh, the, the decade tech lost its way, and it's kind of obnoxious. It's part of their like, we're cool, interactive media people now. Oh my gosh, I just clicked on it and there's intense scroll jacking. <laughs> yeah. So we can't even link directly to the iPad segment of this article, but if you're interested, you can get into the article and find your way to the iPad, where they have an interview with Phil Schiller that also talks about this kind of multi-touch prehistory. I was like, is my browser setting, are my browser settings wrong? Is the text zoom? Because the first word is like 300 point. It's, yeah, this is a really awkward article. Um, but we only bring it up because there is a, a more interesting Twitter thread from Imran Chaudhry uh, that kind of quote tweets this New York Times article and contextualizes it by saying, so the real story is that Steve's brief for iPad was, I want a single piece of glass I can use to read email on the toilet. Forget marketing it to uh, other people. This was Steve's grand vision. <laughs> we'll definitely put a link to this Twitter thread in our show notes for this episode. Go on and read the whole thing. It's pretty great. Obviously, as time goes on, there are more and more people who worked on iPad, iPhone, iPod in the early days who are no longer at Apple and in fact have some distance from their time at Apple and feel like they can speak a little bit more freely about the history of how these products came to be because it is truly history at this point and not you know leaking from inside an organization that they were just recently part of or may still be part of. So there are more and more people who can tell these stories. Some of the some of my favorite stories on this, uh, which I think we did mention back when we did 10 years of iPhone, are the debug episodes with Neaton Ganatra. And anyone who listens to our show who hasn't listened to those episodes should absolutely go back and listen to them. We'll link for sure in the notes to this one. Uh, the third episode that he appears on, which is called iPhone to iPad, and talks about this connection. And I think there was a story, similar story, uh, because, of course, the the iPhone came to be before the iPad in terms of an actual product. And I think in that episode, Neaton tells a story about where he gets a phone call from Steve where he's like at a party and he's gone and hid in the bathroom so that he can use his prototype iPhone <laughs> because nobody is supposed to know about it. So not only was that the design brief, it was actually realized even though the product roadmap changed so drastically that it was the iPhone the iPhone that came out first. <laughs> On that note, let's get to the actual announcement, which did not take place in a bathroom. <laughs> yeah. We're releasing this on the anniversary of the keynote where the iPad was first announced, displayed to the world. Media got their access uh, and hands-on access with it, even though it didn't ship to the public until a couple months later. Of course, we will link up 
uh, video of the full keynote. Uh, and for now, well, why not? Let's link it up to the uh, Apple Archive, which uh, this is quasi-follow-up. I'm sneaking in a little extra follow-up here. Since our last episode, this amazing site called Apple Archive has gone up, which has chronological, uh, well, archives of uh, media, press photos, keynotes, uh, ads, TV commercials, all kinds of different media surrounding Apple and its products. Um, I think it looks like a really awesome site. I hope that it continues into the future because there is lots of stuff on here with Apple copyright warnings, including this keynote video. Um, but as we know, uh, these kind of things have been floating around on YouTube and uh, us dedicated people in the community maintain our our local archives as well. Yeah, one of the best things about Apple Archive is that its creator, Sam Gold, is striving to provide like the best possible versions of all these things, especially the video content. Uh, so yeah, it's it'll be a good primary source, but if it gets taken down, there will always be fuzzy re-uploads from some rogue YouTube account. Right. It's it's way, way better than site colon YouTube.com, every Steve Jobs video in quotes, iPad introduction to find this kind of stuff. <laughs> um so yeah, we hope that we hope that it stays in this format. Um, even if maybe some of the stuff has to be offloaded elsewhere. But yes, uh, let's get into the keynote itself. This was an absolutely by-the-book Apple keynote for this late period of the Steve Jobs era. It was Steve in command. He handed off to a couple of people. It was extremely relaxed and free-flowing, um, maybe as we get towards the end, we'll talk about how much this is or is not sort of like the Apple show that goes on in keynotes today, just 10 years later. But as I said, following the traditional format, and that means updates and numbers up front. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to call out a couple of these as context. You know, when, when we see new Apple events, we're like, oh, just skip it, which they've actually been doing recently, or like, um, oh, I'll go get my sandwich now um, while they're telling me about retail stores and I'll come back. But at the time that the iPad was launching, the first stat that they let off with was not about iPhones, even though they had been out for a couple years. The first stat was that they had sold 250 million total iPods of all generations types, including iPod Touch, which is a very small number, <laughs> given that they now have over a billion devices operating around the world. They also touted that the uh, the iPhone app store, as it was at that point, uh, had 140,000 apps, which again, orders of magnitude less than it is currently that they had had a total of 3 billion app downloads, uh, which is, again, <laughs> more like the number of devices <laughs> today. And they, I guess they had just done their uh, quarterly revenue and touted that Apple is over, <laughs> this is a direct quote from Steve Jobs, Apple is over a $50 billion company. Apple <laughs> in 2020 is well over a trillion dollar company. Yeah, how far we've come. We've come a long way. And that means that the devices that we're going to be looking at, well, the device that we're going to be looking at in this episode, uh, 
really is of a different era of Apple and as part of that success story. The rest of the keynote really is about this one device and you know the, the software and the ecosystem around it. Uh, and Steve gets right into what everyone expects is, is going to be announced. Um, and first, he kind of does some some creative accounting here and says, Apple is primarily a mobile device company. They've had huge success with the iPod, a portable music player. They're starting to have crazy success with the iPhone, a portable phone. And he said that their third product vertical is the Macintosh. And the majority of the Macs they sell are laptops, which are MacBooks at this point. Um, so that makes Apple a mobile device company. And he says, if you compare us to everyone else who does mobile devices, we're bigger than them. That could be uh, Samsung with handsets or Nokia <laughs> with handsets. And that's another thing that's very emblematic of the beginning of the year 2010. Nokia is still the the, the, the dominant handset manufacturer, especially worldwide uh, a product reach. And, and Apple, if you pile in iPods and laptops is bigger than Nokia, which is something that they're proud of and want to trumpet. And then we get into the framing of the new mobile device that's going to be announced today. Um, and so he puts up the two product verticals that are you know, general purpose computing devices. There are three columns on the screen. On the left is the iPhone and on the right is a MacBook and you know, there's got to be something in the middle. And if there is going to be something in the middle, it's got to be worthwhile. And it's probably going to be the form factor of a tablet. The iPad had been heavily rumored, uh, maybe not so much the name, which we'll get <laughs> into for sure. Um, but it's it's been heavily rumored that Apple's going to be creating something in this middle space with the form factor of a tablet. And Steve puts up a little joke slide, which I always enjoy. That's got <laughs> Moses with the Ten Commandments, and it says, "The last time there was this much excitement about a tablet, it had some commandments written on it." Which was a quote from a Wall Street Journal article about the rumors leading up to this announcement. So uh, it's it's always fun when they pick the jokey press comments and deign to put them on the slides. Uh, that that still happens from every every once in a while. Yeah. Like you said, Brian, the uh, rumors were leaning heavily towards the tablet form factor. Nobody knew exactly what that meant. Uh, of course, there were the critics even before they had seen the device going, well, it'll just be a giant iPod touch. Um, there were people who thought that it would be innovative in some other way. There was the stylus or no stylus question uh, always in people's mind. But the thing that the way that Jobs frames this as how they were thinking of it in terms of the prevailing market and what they were thinking of inside Apple was people were saying, yes, the there is a category between these and it's netbooks, which we don't have those anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, so this whole this whole little segment goes off very well in, in hindsight. He puts up uh these several categories that the device should be better at, uh, things like browsing the web, doing email, looking at photos, playing games, things that people definitely do on iPads to this day. He says it has to be better at that. And then <laughs> the direct quote about how netbooks fare in that category is, 
The problem is netbooks aren't better at anything. He says they're just small, cheap laptops and that Apple wants to define a new category. And a nice little historic note here, he puts up a slide with a PowerBook 100 on it. I think this was in part to win over the press that were perhaps skeptical of this new category. And we're seeing netbooks riding high and making lots of money for traditional PC vendors. And he says, look, you're telling us that Apple can't define a new category. We have already done this in the past, though, right? The the PowerBook 100 was the first PowerBook, but it wasn't the first portable Mac. That was the Mac Portable. It wasn't the first portable personal computer at all. There were lots of devices that looked a lot closer to the Mac Portable that were being made by IBM and others. But as soon as Apple said, wait, you can fold it like this, there can be a trackball, you can put the keyboard in this position, everybody copied them. And he was he was putting this forward as evidence that the iPad was going to be good, or you could take maybe even the the broader view, maybe what he was actually saying is, we're going to make another uh, another product that is so good that everybody else is going to copy it. And uh, like you said, with some of the litigation that came afterwards with Samsung and things like that, yeah, I mean, what other tablet doesn't fundamentally look and behave like an iPad? Uh, I think the difference is that um, as we go through the history, what other tablets are there? Which, like, I mean, asterisk, yes, there are Android tablets, but people, even even the tech punditry is saying, like, but why are these still around? Like, they're no good. They're not going anywhere, which is different than a category of, like, the notebook computer, where you might say, aha, well, that category that Apple defined, they're still leading in today in many ways, but plenty of other manufacturers make non-Mac laptops that look the same, behave the same, and have their own benefits. So it's an interesting comparison. To your point about what tablets are for sale today, I don't know if this particular SKU is still on Amazon.com, but they have their Kindle Fire or maybe now just Fire line of cheap and basic Android-powered tablets. And there was definitely a point where you could get like a five-pack. Six-pack, I think. It was it was buy five, get one free. <laughs> like a beer or a soft drink because they're that disposable. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Steve says this is the iPad and, and uh, the slides come down and he starts to go about what, what the iPad is. And then we get to one of the, the trademarks of a Steve Jobs keynote where the slide on the screen just goes to a simple word that says demo. And he says, for you to really get it, I'm going to have to show it to you. It's it's all about the experience. And this was one of his um, more low-key reveals, I thought, uh, <laughs> because uh, for a product that was so highly anticipated, yes, it was under a black cloth, but usually that's like the big moment in, in a keynote. He goes, oh, I've got one right over here. Let's use it. <laughs> and this gets to a moment and a prop that I think is up there with some of the other keynotes that we remember as as some of the all-time greats. Uh, the, the original iPod Nano coming out of the coin pocket of his Levi's jeans is an image. Like it's sure it's marketing and it's you know it's designed to sell and it's designed to wow, but it's a really good image. And like I said, that was more like grand showmanship as opposed to this one. <laughs> yeah. 
or the um, the original MacBook Air coming out of a Manila inner office envelope is a great image. Um, the original iPhone keynote where it's uh, these aren't three separate devices. These are all one devices. You know, that's the greatest keynote product announcement of all time. But I think Steve Jobs saying that, like, to really get what the iPad is and what it's meant to be and its place in your home and in your life, uh, you need to sit and experience it at an arm's length. And so the only stage decoration is a leather easy chair. And when he's doing his hands-on demos of uh, the first party apps, he's kind of reclined, legs crossed in a leather easy chair using an iPad that's hooked up to the projector. Um, and I just think that that's, that's one of the good all-time Apple Keynote images is uh the ipad is connected to the leather easy chair the ipod nano is the tiny pocket in your jeans the macbook air is slim enough to fit in an envelope (laughs) and as we were about to start recording and dropped into our show notes the actual model of the leather easy chair that steve jobs used on my mission to make this a no follow-up episode i knew that some there's one of you out there probably literally just one who's a chair nerd (laughs) And would have been really mad if we just called this a leather chair, because it's a particular chair. This chair is a Le Corbusier chair. I had not heard of Le Corbusier. I thought it was a company. Then I found their website, and it's got a picture of a person. I wondered, oh, what is Mr. Le Corbusier's first name? Oh, no, 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 no. He was an artiste. That was his, like, art name. Like, he, he, he was a one-name guy who was born with other names. Anyway, um, now I've really offended you, chair nerds. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, this particular model of armchair, it's one of these iconic designs that if you know furniture and you know design, you will recognize. Um, I am not in that world, but I know that this is a thing. <laughs> that particular model of armchair was designed in 1928. They are still in production. That's how like timeless of a design it is. You can get your very own current, brand new, one of these armchairs for the low, low price of $5,260 from their website. We'll link it in the show notes. And as I'm looking at this pristine photo on the, the product page and compare it to the one that Steve Jobs is sitting in, they did not buy a new chair and put it out on the stage. This is a well-loved chair. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe this is a story that uh, has not been told or we can find out. Okay, it's entirely possible that it was just like on site where this keynote was given. But like, I want to believe that this was like the chair from Steve's office and they like brought it over and it's worn because he's actually used it. Yeah, I think the chair is one of the stars of this keynote where the main star is the iPad so much so that later on uh, when they're demoing the iWork suite of apps that have been specifically and meticulously designed for the iPad screen, Phil Schiller, you know, he has the stage to himself and he even says, I get to sit in the chair. Yeah. He was really excited about it. (laughs) Um, But it, it also, you know, it's, maybe reading too much into it, but it's part of that design aesthetic of Apple and, you know, like who's, who's a greater chair nerd than any of our listeners, but Johnny Ive, I'm sure. 
And this is one of those statements of this is an iconic piece of design and we're willing to put our product right next to it. Yeah. So now we've, uh, everybody, uh, relax your shoulders, sit back in your easy chair because it's time to kick back for a very laid back demo. Uh, I, wa- I watched this whole demo before we recorded and I honestly forgot that this was how Steve Jobs would present a product. He wanted, like, yes, there were certain things that he wanted to hit upon and show to the audience, but he really just wanted to use it. And this setting is just like, hey, I got this new thing. Let me show it to you. We're not in any rush, right? (laughs) And he basically goes through every single app that Apple has made designed specifically to fill the iPad screen unlike all those 140,000 apps in the store, which were written for iPhones and iPod Touches. And he wants to just go through each one and luxuriate in them in his comfy chair. (laughs) Um, So this starts with uh, a demo of the Mail app, and he even composes a message during live on on stage. And I don't know to, to what extent this was rehearsed, uh, but I think he sends it to, does he send it to Phil and Scott Forstall? I think so, yeah. No subject line. Forget that. No time for that. And he wants to type, wow, we are really announcing the iPad, but he skips the verb R. So it says, wow, we really announcing the iPad. And you can see this on screen. And then he hits send. <laughs> and I love it. And it immediately made me think of one of the funniest keynote typing flubs of all time which is the famous It's Road Trip, (laughs) which was a demo. And then I looked this up. It's great. It's also an iPad demo. It was the iPad Air 2 keynote. Unfortunately, (laughs) this was a third-party company that had been invited up to demo their app for, what was it? It was like automatically generating videos. Slideshows or something. Slideshow, yeah, or something. And it was they were supposed to type Utah Road Trip. And the guy doing the demo <laughs> missed a letter and it got auto-corrected to its road trip, <laughs> which became an immediate in-joke in the Apple community. And also, fun fact, we'll, we'll link to a YouTube video that preserves the original its road trip, including the giant eye roll that <laughs> the guy does when he realizes what he's done. <laughs> but if you look at the official Apple released keynote video from that. They edited it out. They fixed it in post <laughs> because they couldn't have this you know, terrible typo blemish on, on their record of announcing great iPad products. <laughs> Moving on, uh, I'll try to tour through some of these apps, uh, maybe quicker than Jobs did himself. Um, he goes through the music app, uh, which he still refers to as quote, a built in iPod which is adorable. Uh, but I guess at this point, the app was still called iPod. That was how it appeared on the iPhone as well. So it, it makes sense. He didn't tap on an icon that said music. He tapped on an icon that said iPod. Again here, he's just like, let's play some songs. Let's actually listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> which also causes problems for people who want to archive these. Uh, like if they upload them to YouTube, they get the uh, they get auto-flagged for the music content, which is really funny. Steve, you need to have shorter excerpts. 
yeah, I think I'm going to pass over the other apps that uh, that Steve himself demos. Like he he looks at a bunch of photos, for example. He does pay special attention to the the their own kind of auto generating photo slideshow because this was a thing that I had forgotten. The lock screen for the original iPad and its fork of iPhone OS had the like the classic slide to unlock user interface element. But part of that bottom row had a dedicated button to engage uh, the the photo slideshow, presuming that you were leaving your iPad like vertically in a charging dock for most of the day. So he demonstrated like the quick access to dedicated slideshow mode, whereas now we have like buttons for flashlight and camera. Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually, that that got eliminated from iOS, right? There's no way to do that now other than to like leave the device unlocked with the display not set to turn off and put on a slideshow. Whereas on the Mac and even on tvOS, there are still options where you can set a screensaver that draws from your own photo library. One of the other big announcements in the keynote that actually called for having another presenter come up was the introduction of the three iWork apps. And Phil Schiller did this part. Uh, Another piece of the keynote presentation style. Uh, I think that this was mentioned on During Fireball, maybe just this past year, last year at WWDC, where we saw a lot of fresh faces. And uh, John Gruber commented on the fact that like once somebody has presented once at Apple at an Apple keynote, from that point on, they're just introduced by first name. And like, I, ca- I cannot keep track of these people. They have a lot of people. They have a lot of awesome people that they've been bringing out on stage to demonstrate their products. And I don't know who most of them are. However, 10 years ago, when Phil Schiller comes out to demo iWork and not his first rodeo, this is, you know, long after he jumped off of a platform onto a mattress, <laughs> right? He's yeah. been there before. Uh, they put up on the slide, Phil Schiller and his title and a giant picture of him as he walks out, something they do not do anymore. Anyway, he sits down in the chair, very excited to show off iWork. I think that uh, Keynote gets the most time, which makes the most sense. It's the most visually rich of any of the iWork applications. And I think to this day of the iWork apps on iOS or iPadOS is heralded as the most useful. Like it's the one where people who have both Macs and iPads sometimes tend to go to Keynote on the iPad as as a choice. Whereas accessing pages documents or numbers spreadsheets is kind of like, well, I can do it here. Yeah. So he shows off each of uh each of these apps. One thing that stood out immediately to me in Keynote that would not have stood out if I was doing a retrospective of the iPad at five years, but does now, is he, he he's showing off the multi-touch gestures. And he goes, okay, well, that's how I reorganize slides in the deck. What if I want to reorganize multiple slides? Well, if I start a drag and then I tap the other slides, they go into a bundle and I can drag them over. I went, wait a minute. That's how they did drag and drop in iOS 11, which was an iPad-exclusive feature, and everyone thought was brand new and had never been done before. There it was on day one, day zero, of 
the iPad, that interaction model had not just been thought of, but had been implemented. Yes, only in a single app, not as a system-wide feature. But it goes to show, like we said at the top, how this multi-touch technology was the foundation. And like there was there was a lot there that the actual product, the hardware and the operating system software was built on that was just pure concepts and pure technology from multi-touch. So I thought that that was very cool. Yeah, same here. And uh, to also go back to uh, the the start of this show where we talked about some of the, the stuff leading up to the iPad, that series on the debug podcast with Nitin Ganatra, um, the episode that we're linking to in our episode show notes right here uh, does do a little bit of a tangent on um, going from the, the sweet solution of web apps to exposing the native SDK and its various APIs. And one of them was how like scroll views were kind of uh, siloed within individual apps, like messages had its own scroll view for the table of different conversations. Email had its own scroll view for your inbox and so on. And they decided, you know, like, well, you can't, that's not scalable. You can't like, if there's a bug in one, you have to apply the the fix in every app manually. Um, and so it's interesting that uh, that methodology, it probably applied here in keynote where it's like, Oh, we, yeah, we, we figured it out. We figured out multi-touch drag and drop, uh, but it's siloed within this one app. We're just going to have to expose it at the system level. Yeah. Uh, work's done. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're prepping the, the iOS 11, uh, roadmap and someone, someone's like, wait, wait, I wrote that code eight years ago. <laughs> so yeah, like I said, Keynote was the star of iWork, uh, but all three apps were available. They were all considered, Full featured. You could, of course, sync documents back to your Mac with a cable, <laughs> like an animal, uh, or, or like the state of the art at the time. And the other interesting, most interesting thing to say about these iWork apps at their launch was that they were paid upfront apps. They were $9.99 each. Of course, there was no way to do a bundle. So if you wanted all three of the apps, you would have to go in and purchase each one of them separately. And I think, as I said, that Keynote was most attractive. I think that I actually did that, where I had purchased Keynote uh, early on in the iPad's history. And then only a few years later, in 2013, did all of those apps become free on the App Store. And then, of course, everybody has them, whether they're pre-installed on the device or not, they're available to all for download. There are a couple of things about the initial release of the iWork apps that kind of jump out. One is definitely the pricing scheme. The other is their app icons are literally uh, the the iOS squircle kind of pre-iOS 7 with a nice gradient, make it look like a bubble. And then the macOS 10 icon just dropped right on top of it, sized appropriately. Yeah, that's really weird. Um, I guess that sort of, sort of presages some of Apple's later icon design that um, especially post iOS 7 has been called lazy. Oh, really? Health? You just put yeah. a, you just put a red heart in a white rectangle and dragged it off center. Could do that in 10 seconds, right? Like people criticize that. Um, but it's not without precedent. It's just kind of taking that same thing. Like the, the uh, numbers, pages, keynote on iOS have their own icons now, but it is just their like color-coded glyphs on white 
it actually has some lineage to it, even if in a really hyper flat design language, it can look uh, a little lazy. The other thing about uh, these apps is that initially they were iPad only. Of course, now they're iPhone optimized as well. But you know, with the with the rich uh, skeuomorphic interfaces and the the actual room to be productive, they were iPad exclusives at the beginning. And uh, I think this was a distinction that was a lot clearer in the early years of the iPad, where you could have different builds of your app in the App Store, so you could buy one copy of an app that was specifically for iPhones. And at that time, just the 3.5 inch screens and a separate app bundle for iPads and it's 9.7 inch screen. And you'll recall that many developers differentiated those by, for some unknown reason, calling the iPad versions HD at the end of the app name. That's right. Like, I, th- I think this is an actual historical example. Like you could get Angry Birds or Angry Birds HD. But if you were a developer who wanted to offer both versions in a single app for purchase, Apple recycled some of their terminology. That was a universal app, I believe, uh, in the same way that during the Intel transition, a universal app was something that could run on the old PowerPC processors or an Intel processor. Um, and the, the iconography for that was a kind of macOS face colored yin yang symbol. Uh and I think that when you got a universal mobile app, it was just there was a tiny little plus on the purchase button designating that it would run on uh, both size class devices. Of course, now that's all muddled. Uh, everything should be responsive. There are a bajillion size classes of iPhone, a bajillion iPad classes. You know, everything should just be responsive. One other app that I think we should focus on because it was focused on in the keynote and then also has some broader ramifications that we'll get to as we move down the timeline later in the show is the introduction of iBooks. So this was, of course, the first time that Apple was launching iBooks because, of course, it was one of those key categories that the iPad could be better at was a reading experience. You didn't want to read an ebook sitting with your MacBook Pro in your lap. And while I've been known to read a Kindle book on my iPhone, of course, one, the screen is much larger now. And two, that's still not my ideal scenario for that kind of reading. It's more of a convenience that, oh, like if I'm reading a book on my Kindle, my position sinks over to my iPhone or uh, you know, I don't go seeking out my iPad now to read an ebook on for a larger screen, for example. But this was one of the things that Jobs touted the iPad as being very good for. Obviously, the form factor itself uh, makes you think of a book. Well, a one one page book. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, you know those monsters who take a paperback book and fold it back over on itself and. It's like that, <laughs> except you don't break the spine because it's an ebook. <laughs> this was another like, classic Steve way of presenting a product. What do the other guys have? Um, he was actually very conciliatory to Amazon and the Kindle platform saying, look, they've been developing this and they're doing a great job. People love Kindles, right? Like, And, and that was true. And he also, however shows a current at the time Kindle on a slide. And it looks it looks like it's from another planet now. 
Um, it was a Kindle 2, which didn't look quite as weird as the Kindle 1, but it was still kind of asymmetrical, has the hardware keyboard at the bottom, it was white, has a whole bunch of buttons. This is what we would think of now as primitive e-reader technology apart from the screen. And he says, no, look, you can read a book on your on your iPad. All you see is page, bezel, home button, right? It was a very clean experience. And of course, as the Kindle technology improved, that's what Amazon went to. And now what we think of as sort of a default Kindle, like a paper white or something like that, is a device that just has a touchscreen and bezel on the front. Um, and of course, it's not a multi-touch screen, but it is an e-ink screen. So like, it has its benefits if all you want to do is read, as opposed to getting a rich experience on a backlit tablet like an, like an iPad. Uh, but it is an interesting link in the development between these things. Now, of course, iBooks is not an ebooks juggernaut. Um, in fact, I don't know anybody who does the majority of their ebook reading in the iBooks app, well, books now app. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After the purging of the eyes, <laughs> um, it's now just books. Um, it hasn't really caught on as a platform. It still exists. It hasn't died, but it hasn't caught on in the same way. But it was a completely novel way, even compared to the Kindles of the day, of seeing books. And the thing that made it look like it was going to take off was the integrated store. Ed, you mentioned that rich experience. Um, the When you're in reading a book in the original launch of iBooks, uh, you could have the option to have it be styled like you're reading a book with the kind of cascading pages remaining to be read down the right margin, some gradients suggesting a spine on the left. Big, swoopy uh, page turn animations. Paper texture in the background, which has only survived thus far in the Notes app for some reason. Um, but yes, also a store, an integrated store within the app, so no need for a separate store app like they were doing with iTunes, for example. Uh, the iPod app versus the iTunes store app. The interface of switching to the store is incredible. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, like, like secret agent. Uh, you pull a book on a bookshelf and the whole thing swivels to reveal that the bookshelf was a door. That's kind of what this was like. Yeah. And it was like a riff on that kind of interaction that already existed in some Apple software. Like remember on dashboard widgets, where you would click the little information button and it would animate like it was flipping to the backside. Yeah. That would be where you would change the settings. This is the way that you would access the store. But I noticed as I was watching, um, a dashboard widget is is represented as like flat, like a piece of paper. But because your library view is this bookcase, when it flips over, it's... It's like it's it has thickness to it. Yeah, it has depth. You can see wood on the side. It's you know, it's a foot and a half thick. And then you flip over to the store. And the store was uh true to this era of Apple named the iBook Store. I was convinced that this was iBooks space store, and I think it was in later car- incarnations, but there is a point 
I, I think at the end of the keynote where they're summing things up and they say we now have three stores, the iTunes store, the app store, and the iBook store, where it is written as iBookstore. All one word. I looked at that and I went, oh no. <laughs> we'll again get into the legal implications of having an ebook store later in this episode. But if we want to flip the one and a half foot thick uh, bookshelf back to its front, um, when you weren't actively reading an app, but you were perusing your uh, book library that you had access to on your device, uh, it had many wood paneled shelves that uh, as long as you got your EPUB book from Apple or, you know, a, a complete source, didn't fall off the back of an EI truck, whatever. Uh, the cover was rendered. I think they even did some some work so that, like, even though you got a flat cover image, they put some gradients along the side to simulate the the book binding and the spine. Um, and Ed, as you've put here, another thing from this era of like mid Mac OS X interface, uh, it looks like delicious library. The stalwart of skeuomorphic design. People complained about that. On the one hand, yes, it does look like Delicious Library. On the other hand, how many different ways can you draw a wooden bookshelf? Yeah, that's true. Delicious Library, for the record, uh, still exists. We'll, we'll link to Delicious Monsters page. I'm looking at screenshots, though, and yeah, holy skeuomorphism, Batman. I can only describe it as having... Like, what do you even call this? It has like a cornice at the top. It doesn't have the regular window chrome. It like flares out like it's carved out of wood. It's uh, it's rather incredible. Not even the the rich Corinthian calendar um, quite went to that level. This is a lot. So let's wrap up what was mentioned in the keynote. One, there was no one more thing. If there was, one, you know, if there were more things, it was all just additional features about the uh, about the iPad itself. The last big piece that was mentioned in the keynote is the fact that there would be uh that there would be cellular models at this point still just 3G uh and that they would be coming shortly after the launch of the non cellular Wi-Fi only models. Uh there were two options available uh for data on AT&T in the US. There was an unlimited plan and there was also a 250 megabyte plan which Steve says most people will get by on in a month. 2010. Yeah, I think I just saw a screenshot somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone posted the uh, Safari inspector view for, I believe it's the iPhone 11 Pro product page on Apple. 41 megabytes. Oh, God. You could blow almost a fifth of your monthly data just uh, just shopping for an iPhone now. <laughs> but you can pay, pay double the price and get unlimited, which was still pretty good then. That was a big thing. And before we go into the other specs, there, there's one other figure that, of course, they saved to the end. Uh, people were wondering how Apple was going to make this tablet. And they showed it off for over an hour, and it looks like absolutely everything that people could have hoped for and the product, surely, surely it will cost $1,000. These were the rumors. Everyone's going to, you know, <laughs> Jobs actually says, the rumors say they'll get it under $1,000, which is code for $9.99. And he puts that up on the slide. And then 
fun fun little piece of this keynote some of their keynote like actual the piece of software keynote transitions had sound effects with them <laughs> this one he hits the transition there's a breaking glass sound and down comes 499 and that was probably the biggest announcement of the entire the entire keynote was the fact that apple had packed all of this into a device that started at half the price that people were genuinely expecting and uh, was part of them breaking in on that category of netbooks that were around that price as well. Yeah, this part sticks out for a couple of reasons. Um, obviously, it's it's the shattering of expectations with a glass shattering sound. And I think we've brought it up maybe in our advertising episode or maybe in the, the rumors and secrets episode that um, and I can't find some kind of canonical discussion about this. But I think it was believed that um, Apple every once in a while would seed some rumor type information to reputable sources like the Wall Street Journal. And given the well, the the, the emphasis certainly from Steve on citing a thousand dollar rumor price point but the fact that that was not just in the wall street journal but on all the blogs and everything is catching steam does give a little credence to the fact that maybe apple wanted to manufacture this moment um they, they had been targeting 500 dollars all along but to make it really stand out they should set expectations at twice the price under promise over deliver classic and the other thing is to contextualize that price in terms of the iphone which I think at this point was still in the era of uh, two-year contract subsidies. So the iPhone may look like it starts at $200 on paper, but you're you're tied to a contract in which you're essentially paying that off, the difference between that and the full retail price off over two years. Um, if you buy an iPhone cash out of pocket on day one, I think it was more than uh, $499 for the entry-level iPhone, um, like in the same model year as the iPad. So yeah, uh, there are lots of reasons that this is on its own um, a, a really competitive price, but I think some of the Apple magic made it seem even more incredible that they hit four ninety nine. Oh, one one thing in the pricing um, is of course the additional price for the cellular models, one hundred thirty dollars. As Steve says, "quote to build in the radios." Apparently, those radios haven't gotten any cheaper. Because it's $130 on every cellular device to this day. <laughs> and then the keynote, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up our discussion about the keynote itself with, uh, I don't know, is this the first time that he uses uh, his metaphor here, the, the, the intersection? I don't know. It, it just feels like such a truism that I, I would imagine that it goes all the way back to the 80s. But um, it's it's one of those phrases that... Apple likes to use to describe themselves that they are quote at the intersection of technology and the liberal arts. And there's a beautifully rendered uh, actual street sign that says technology and liberal arts with like address block ranges. And of course it's in the style of San Francisco street signs, like attention to detail. But that is what they were pitching, whether that's a motto for all of Apple's products or the iPad specifically one of the things that was being pitched in this product launch was the fact that many of those liberal arts activities, uh, which then later got 
derided as consumption only yeah. uh, were exactly the kind of things, those categories that were laid out as the things that the iPad would be good at, particularly good at. So lights up on, on the keynote. Everybody go to the hands-on area and fire up the take machine. Oh, man. First of all, everybody hated the name iPad. And there were... Oh my god! I can't, I can't believe that we actually did this as a people. <laughs> as a people, there were so many period jokes. Like I don't understand. It was like no one has ever sat at a desk and written on a pad of paper. They couldn't possibly fathom what the metaphor was here. Why they called it iPad? It's shaped like a legal pad, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, headlines: iPad name draws feminine hygiene jokes. That's from CNN. We'll link to all of these. And then the puns come in. Public doesn't cotton to iPad name. That's awful. Terrible. (laughs) Thank you, Tucson Sentinel. And from NPR, iPad morphs from Mad TV sketch to Apple device. This is really funny. So there was a several years prior Mad TV sketch about what if Apple actually created a feminine hygiene maxi pad. Why use a maxi pad when there's the new iPad from Apple? (laughs) iPad? With the new iPad, I just hook up my Apple to my peach. And I can download protection for up to a thousand periods. Like that. And with wireless Bluetooth technology, iPad sets you up for fast uploading without all that water bloating. Wow, that's great. Very funny sketch. I I appreciate it. Um, Also, times have changed. Um, That is not the part of the body that Peach refers to anymore. (laughs) Wow. But also, like, it has nothing to do with it except for the fact that somebody used, like, it has nothing to do with it. Yeah. It really doesn't. Maybe people were just so juvenile because they were upset that they hadn't put it in their list of potential product names. Um, obviously, the like the i prefix was a given, but I remember there was a lot about like, is it i tablet, i slate? But then I think at like the eleventh hour at CES, HP released their tablet and they called it the slate, and everyone's like, oh no, well, well that's out. In in beautiful beautiful hindsight. The worst thing about the name iPad is that it's close to iPod. That's it. As podcasters, we can trip up. We're almost never talking about iPods anymore, but sometimes we accidentally say iPod, right? Just because of the phonological similarity between them. But that's really the end of it. Um, So we can, of course, go on and talk about all of the other iPads and all of the other specs and more important takes. Although... I must say, at some point along the line, uh, where we got to the point where there were going to be, where there were rumors that there was going to be a larger screen iPad, I said that just to really make those idiots squirm, they already had the iPad and the iPad Mini, and that they should call the larger screen one the iPad Maxi. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk about uh, Let, let's talk tech specs. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> get far away from this. Uh, the iPad came in three capacities at launch, 16, 32, and 64 gigabytes, again at the price points of $499, $599, and $699, or with a $130 premium on each of those to add cellular connectivity. 
The Wi-Fi only models were the first to come out by about a month. They were released on April 3rd of 2010. The cellular models, um, I think initially just in the United States and just on AT&T, were released on April 30th. And that was mentioned in the keynote as 60 days from now and 90 days from now. They didn't even have totally nailed down launch dates. Although, you know, plus or minus just a couple days, they hit those targets right on. And much like the original iPhone kind of defined the form factor for many generations, the original iPad, I think, defined its, it's like the, this classic size um, dimensions and specs until the current model year in which we record it. There's always been a 9.7 inch iPad with the equivalent of a 1024 by 768 pixel screen. That many points. Yeah, points. Right. Of course, that later became Retina. But now I do think that the the kind of uh, base level iPad, no marketing modifiers is 10.2 inches. And we have a 10.5 inch iPad Air as we record it, but no 9.7 except for like existing previous model inventory. It was a good run for the 9.7 inch screen. Of course, one of the most important things about the size and shape of the iPad was that it was essentially all screen. We we now have more stringent requirements for that these days where people actually talk about like uh screen to body ratios, especially if you're in like the TV world or Android phones. They're like, this phone has a 98% screen to body ratio. And then there's some dumb Android phone where they have the thing where it re- like the screen goes over the edge, which just makes everything look broken and uncolor corrected. <laughs> and they're like, we have 103% screen to body ratio. We have more screen than body. And it's like, well, just put five blades on it. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about the iPad was that of devices at the time, it was the most screen to body ratio that you could find. Um, you know, yeah, the bezels were a little bit bigger than if you just took the top half off of a MacBook, but you have to consider the other half of the MacBook. Uh, and in fact, that was the whole point is you don't have to carry around that keyboard with you. A lot of emphasis in the demos was there's a software keyboard. It shows up when you need it. It disappears when you don't. You don't have to have a keyboard. They were still selling this. You know, 2010, some people were still not convinced that the iPhone was a success because it didn't have a hardware keyboard. People clutching dearly to their Blackberries, <laughs> which are now uh, in electronics waste recycling somewhere. But anyway, the iPad was remarkably small and light. It was 0.5 inches thick. Again, comparable to just a half of a MacBook. It was 1.5 pounds. Again, comparable to half of a MacBook Air, which was the most lightweight thing that Apple had shipped at that point. The 2009 MacBook Air weighed three pounds. So it was absurdly small and light for any device of of its sort, uh, for anything bigger than a phone that fit in the palm of your hand. A curious omission in hindsight is that the original iPad models, the first generation, had no cameras, no rear camera, no FaceTime, front-facing, Face ID, face-face-face camera. Um, and I don't think people were exactly clamoring for it, even if the iPad 2, which had cameras, uh, certainly mentioned them as a selling point. I have to say that 
I'm okay with the fact that iPads have cameras now, but given Apple's sort of trend towards conservatism in design and not releasing something until it's truly awesome and just how bad the original or you know, not the original, but the earliest iPad cameras were, it would have made more sense if they waited longer than they did. To say nothing of the the spectacle that it is when you are taking photos with an iPad as people who do are often made fun of and you know. well, precisely and that that's what i mean is if they had waited to a point where that was an experience that was actually going to produce a really worthwhile result although i can see the the other argument um which may have prevailed for putting it in early on is just a pure accessibility argument even if you don't have the world's greatest sensor in there if you have something ca- comparable to what they would be willing to put in an iPhone, and you have someone who can't use a regular camera with a viewfinder or even has trouble using uh, what at that point were three and a half inch iPhone screens. If you were suddenly able to take photos because you had a 10 inch viewfinder, I'll give it to them. And of course, now I think something the iPad got before the iPhone was OS level um, like OCR, you take a photo using the camera of a piece of paper with printed text on it, and the system does all the work for you. Obviously, you need some kind of image sensing hardware on it to do that. And of course, to to do those kind of activities, you would also need top class processors. Uh, the original iPad did have a pretty high quality processor. It had the A4 processor, which was the first of the actually marketed. A-series chips, obviously not the first <laughs> completely in the line, because why would it be called A4 instead of A1 then? <laughs> but uh, that was the processor that was in the original iPad. Interesting here, it's listed on the slide as a one gigahertz processor. I think because that's impressive, it's uh, a milestone to be over a gigahertz mark, but that is not the kind of thing that Apple talks about anymore with respect to any of the A-class processors. They aren't going to tell you at all what clock speed they're running at, and their argument is it's largely irrelevant. You know, roll back another 15 years to the uh, Pentium versus G3 wars and having to explain to everybody that megahertz is irrelevant. Um it's megahertz myth all over again. Just except this time, instead of fighting the battle, just uh, just don't even think about it. Don't worry about it. It's great. <laughs> and finally, one of the most important specs for the iPad is well, what operating system is it running? It was running what at the time was still called iPhone OS. Obviously, this was a big part of the pitch. We skipped over the half hour in the demo where they just showed blown up uh, blown up iPhone apps and how they would all still work. That was Scott Forstall sitting in the chair, for the record. It was running iPhone OS, but it had to be a separate fork, and so these original iPads were running iPhone OS 3.2, while all of the iPhone models continued on 3.1.x until iOS 4 dropped, the next year. And then there was more of a unification where, at least for major features, they aligned. Um, and of course, the name was combined into iOS. 
But there were still other times, I didn't look up all of them, there there are a handful I know, uh, where a feature that was hardware-specific either to the iPhone or to the iPad would come out mid-cycle, and there would be a particular version, uh, either a major point release or even sometimes, I think, just a minor point release that only worked on the one branch of hardware, which is very interesting. Of course, now we're in an era where there is iOS. Maybe it should have still been called iPhone OS. <laughs> and iPad OS. And while they're marching in lockstep now in terms of version numbers, it'll be interesting to see if this kind of thing happens again and how much they will diverge in the future. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that segment of like blowing up um, iPhone or phone-sized apps uh and instead taking the care to craft them. I think that was a marketing selling point for a while. Like, look at the breadth of tablet-optimized apps in the Apple App Store for mobile devices versus the kind of stretched Android tablet-class software that came out, which they kind of had to do because there weren't just the very neat two size of displays. Um, And... I don't know how much we've talked about Mike Mattis on this show, but he's uh, uh, long been contributing software both as like a third party developer and a first party developer to Apple and the Apple ecosystem. Um, He's credited for specifically a lot of the UI work on photos and maps in this initial release of the iPad targeted iPhone OS. And then interestingly enough, pretty soon after his work on this first run of the iPad, he left Apple and started his own company, Push Pop Press, which was notable for making the best iBooks, <laughs> specifically Al Gore's Our Choice, which had lots of interactive media. Like I think you could blow into the microphone on the iPad and it would make the windmill move in the chapter about wind power and all those kinds of things. So he's kind of always been in, uh, in step with the that era of skeuomorphic if you want to call it or just kind of a real world design at the ipad um size class oh hang on here uh real-time follow-up since you've linked to his website he also worked on delicious library of course he did it all comes together maybe it wasn't so stolen after all we cracked the case Speaking of cases. Oh, very good. (laughs) Run with it. Uh, There were also some first party accessories you could buy for your iPad when it came out. Um, One of those was an Apple case. This was a bad case. This was (laughs) this was a very bad case. I, I never owned a first generation iPad, but I saw some people who did and they did not like it. Well, this was even before there were like magnets to do sleep and wake, right? Yeah, because that was uh, one of the big uh, selling features of the iPad too was was the magnets and the smart covers and their kind of Pixar like uh, ads that accompanied it. But the first iPad case was a pretty cheap looking and cheap feeling piece of felt that covered the entire back and had a flap to cover the front. And I guess it was nice because it had an Apple logo on it and it had holes cut out for the buttons and the speakers and you could fold it back into a slot so you could you know, prop up the iPad for typing or or viewing. But other than that, it was just kind of cheap. And I definitely remember someone having one and I could see it fraying. Uh, It was not good quality. 
These like in terms of just the lack of features and stuff, though, this does look like when you're like walking in Times Square and there's somebody who has just like a fold up table with a bunch of phone accessories yeah. <laughs> for sale on the sidewalk. And they're like, iPad case? You're like, no, five ninety nine. No, thank you. Yeah, this was a bad case. Uh, the iPad had its own charging dock, which I, I think Steve was using when he demonstrated that dedicated button for photo slideshow. That was a lot like the iPhone docks, except bigger. It had a 30 pin connector and a headphone jack out the back. And then there's something that we have covered before in our show, our episode about keyboards. It had a keyboard dock, which forced you to dock your 30 pin iPad in portrait and use the the same kind of keyboard that I guess was like in line with the Apple tube Bluetooth keyboard of the time, the aluminum keyboard. Yeah. It looks like the same angle and everything. Something I did not remember from the last time we discussed it is that uh, in the row of function keys, some of them were different and optimized for iPad or iPhone mobile OS. Uh, And I guess In the middle where on some laptops you had keyboard brightness, there's a straight up empty button and we will link to uh, iLounge, which I think back then was iPod Lounge's review of the iPad keyboard dock, which says they tried pressing it and they uh, it, it would wake up the iPad screen. But other than that, they could discern no functionality for the empty button. I mean... Granted, I'm looking at an extended Magic Keyboard in front of me, and F5 and F6 are both empty, except for saying F5 and F6. So it's always been a problem. Another thing that was available to purchase with your iPad uh, day one of ownership was something that I think did endure uh, at least the length of the 30-pin dot connector as far as the iPad was concerned. And this was the camera connection kit. These were two small adapters, um, dongles, basically. On one side, you have the 30-pin male connector. And on the other side, on one, you have a female, or I guess just uh, an SD slot. And on the other, you have a female USB-A port. And uh, my younger brother, Kevin, is a longtime uh, Apple retail employee. He was working in Apple retail stores at this time and he said these were the hottest ticket items because people would buy them um they would more or less throw away the sd reader but they would keep this very neat very clean usb to 30 pin uh adapter which enabled all kinds of things i think uh pretty soon after this was released someone maybe jason snell maybe john gruber rigged up the camera kit connector to an iMate and got their Apple Extended 2 working in their iPad. They didn't have to use a keyboard dock. It seemed that, you know, if since the operating system was at its core OS 10, which had all kinds of things just baked in to interface with USB peripherals, if you could plug a US a normal USB thing into your iPad, uh, chances are it would work. And this was a first party way to make that happen. So these were big sellers. I did not throw away the uh, SD card reader. In fact, I still have one of those. And when on the rare occasion that I'm traveling with no Mac and with a camera with SD cards, I actually have the the SD to 30 pin uh, connector permanently 
not like not like glued, but always connected to a 30 pin to lightning adapter that then I plug into my iPad. And that still works at like probably USB 1.1 speeds or something, but it works. <laughs> oh, and you you said, Brian, this was the way to get USB-A everything into those early iPads, except, of course, storage, because you would have to wait another nine years for that. Right. Okay. I think that sums up things that were launched 10 years ago. We've been going for a while, but let's uh, make it through a brief history of what's happened to the iPad line since then. Pretty much one year later, uh, after at least the introduction of the I- the original iPad, we had the iPad 2. And again, we we alluded to some of the revolutionary new features already. Um, the case got redesigned and it was more tapered, uh, so it at least had the illusion of being thinner. I think it was also a little outright thinner. Um, front-facing camera, rear-facing camera, magnets embedded in the bezels to go with the accompanying smart covers. So your your front case would align and uh, neatly snap into place instead of this cheap piece of felt. Uh, one other interesting point about the introduction of the iPad 2 was that it was presented in a very similar way to the first iPad. Uh, we'll link to an article on Daring Fireball summarizing the event where John Gruber says, even the chair on stage was the same. Delightfully, the host was the same as last year, too, uh, because this was at the time when Steve Jobs was having some serious health troubles, and it was not at all guaranteed that he was, in fact, going to be the one presenting the iPad 2 at the keynote launch. But, um, well, maybe the chair had something to do with it. As I said, we'll link to that article, which is delightfully called simply The Chair. Oh, that's nice. Now let's just get into the uh, entire problem of what to call iPads. Fast forward another year, time for another iPad What's it called? It's called the new iPad. <laughs> that was Apple's official line. Uh, now, in support documentation, at least it is officially known as iPad third generation. This was actually a huge leap forward for the iPad. It was the first iPad with a retina screen, which was uh, really an incredible jump for the product. I will link up the Wayback Machine to the product page for when, shortly after it had launched, with a really, like, A-plus pun work here, Apple, on the tagline, which was resolutionary. Alas, this iPad um, is kind of the, the, like, the forgotten one, even though it heralded this big, crucial change to the product line. Um, It was a little clunky because they were fitting, you know, Four times the pixels in the same area, uh, same, well, more or less same area, because I think the case got a little thicker, but they were, you know, the, the processor hadn't made appropriate leaps and bounds. The GPU on board hadn't made the appropriate leaps and bounds. So this was a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. And it should be pointed out that that was the largest retina screen that had ever been made at that point, because that was 2012, early 2012. And the first retina macbook pro came out in the summer of that year so yes they were they they were really pushing things they they wanted to get to that retina resolution but it was a little bit of a stretch so just half a year later comes ipad parentheses fourth generation they people 
again, joking with the names, um, people wanted to call it the new, new iPad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Apple realized that that was a losing game and just started calling it iPad. And um, as they were getting to the point where they would be selling multiple models at the same time, would put those second generation, third generation, or no, it was iPad, iPad 2, third generation, fourth generation, and so forth. Um, as you alluded to, Brian, there were there was debt that the third generation had that needed to be paid off in the fourth generation. Better processor, especially for a GPU to avoid things like shearing when you st- when you scroll up and down, where like the the page would just tear in half. Like that's why it's called shearing. It just couldn't draw a hundred percent of the pixels all at the same time. And another big change. Uh, in that time period was the adoption of lightning. I think they all came that fall. Like the, the iPhone five came out that fall to introduce lightning. And then uh, the fourth gen iPad and the first gen iPad mini came out at the, like the month later event. So it was clear that the other iOS devices were moving to the new hardware standard and it only made sense for the iPad to come along that way. If you had the latest and greatest, both in the larger and smaller form factor that you would be sharing connectors. And everybody knows that changing connectors is a whole thing. (laughs) And then after this fourth generation, things get weird. Well, no, actually things stayed simple. Uh, If you look at the products that are just called iPad, but (laughs) there was some controversy over in Wikipedia land. Let me just put it this way. All of the iPad articles on Wikipedia are named wrong. (laughs) And it was because of this extremely stupid fight that people got into and a very stupid situation that they got into. So after the fourth generation iPad, there were other lines that were introduced, like the iPad Air. Mm -hmm. And some people on Wikipedia thought, well, and some people in the Apple community thought, well, of course, you've gone from the iPad to the iPad Air, which is thinner and better. And so therefore, you will never go back. You'll never make another thing called iPad. They will all be iPads Air from now into eternity. And because of this, they started naming iPad Air articles on Wikipedia, fifth generation, sixth generation, etc. To the point when, uh, in 2017 a new product that was just called iPad was released. And its official name is iPad 5th Generation. Someone on Wikipedia made a page for this and called it iPad 7th Generation, because all the names were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a motion to move the page to its correct title. And boy, that did not go over well. (laughs) Someone said that it should be moved to iPad fifth generation, and here, here's a comment thread that follows that we will link to. Strongly oppose. The name iPad fifth generation refers to iPad Air, which this article is not about, responding to that comment. That the name iPad fifth generation refers to this iPad, which this article is about. <laughs> Next response. It refers to both the iPad Air and the 2017 iPad, trying to broker compromise. <laughs> That means the iPad 5th generation should be a disambiguation page. And then someone just, the original poster just comes in and says, iPad 2017 is a best title. (laughs) Which is not even English, let alone a best title. Maybe you should not be the person who chooses what this page is called. It's called iPad 2017. 
people have been trying to move it for the past three years, and everyone points back to, we reached consensus in 2017, and it shall not change. The iPad names from here into the foreseeable future are all screwed up. (laughs) And how did we get here? Because after this fourth generation iPad, the next, again, 9.7 inch display iPad that came out was the iPad Air. And why was it called Air? Well, it was thinner. It was lighter. They trimmed the side bezels to match the design language of the iPad Mini, which had come out the year before. Um, Part of getting it thinner was I think this was the first iPad to have like the screen laminated with the touch sensor. So everything was just compressed. Yeah, always fewer and fewer layers. And then the next year, the 9.7 inch iPad class was called the iPad Air 2. In these two years, there were no (laughs) just iPads. And then... uh, we Apple, like you just said, reverted to just calling the 9.7 inch class thing that wasn't a pro because there was a 9.7 inch pro just iPad again. And then now here in 2020, we have a, a, a like a, a 10.2 inch iPad, which should be the 9.7 inch iPad and a 10.5 inch iPad Air, which was, you know, the last model of the mid class iPad Pro before the pros got redesigned. We are it's it's a mess. It's a mess. But all that is to say, yes, there are these lines, the iPad Air, which are thinner and lighter mid-size iPads. There are the iPad Minis, which are, what is the, it's like 6.9 inch or 7 inch roughly uh, displays that still have uh, effectively 1024 by 768 points, whether at 1x or at 2x. Um, And then there are the iPad Pros, which initially the very first one was 12.9 inches. So what made it pro? Well, first, big old screen, but also some things like the smart connector or uh, pencil support or later uh, higher refresh rates, both to support like pencil accuracy and also switching intelligently between high frame rate video content and just putting up static stuff for you to consume as you look at the screen. We have all these product lines. There was this question of, would the iPad succeed? And not only has it, has it succeeded, it's, it's multiplied into this broad product range. And the fact that there are all of these distinctions that the plain iPad name was brought back to refer to a lower cost uh, product that was somewhat targeted for education, but also just for the mass consumer, not something like an eMac where you couldn't even buy one if you were just, you know, a consumer wandering into a store. Uh, and the Pro, which, of course, you know, don't come to us for uh, for news on what the hottest thing is in iPad Pros. <laughs> um, but obviously, still getting updated has the you know, most exciting design language of Apple's portable products at the moment with people, including me, hoping that it comes to iPhones. Mm-hmm. in the near future as we record this. Um, and yeah, all of that uh, you know, new technology, third generation iPad Pros with a, a new generation of the pencil, with Face ID, with USB-C, where you actually can plug in a mass storage device as long as it's powered, as long as it has a USB-C plug, asterisk, asterisk. You haven't escaped Dongle Town yet. But <laughs> um, all of that stuff is you know reaching way high up on the Pro and uh, you know, reaching way down to the most budget-conscious consumer who can get out the door for $329 with something that absolutely continues the vision of the original iPad where 
sit back in your chair and and enjoy the iPad experience. Like I said, you know, we skipped over a lot of recent iPad stuff. Um, maybe a good place here to mention some excellent, uh, you know, excellent other sources of content for for people who want to to go deep on more recent history and the current status of the iPad. So over on Relay, they had the show Canvas, which uh, ran for a few years and uh, is no longer active, but I think covered a really important period in the iPad's development um, where that was uh, Fraser Spears and Federico, right? Yeah. Where Federico is, is still, um, you know, using the iPad as his main computer and Fraser was, um, was administering iPads in his work and got to the point where he was so disillusioned that they, they went to Chromebooks. And specifically in his work was the classroom situation, right? Yeah. The, the education setting, which is something that has been a through line. Well, a through line in the iPad product line, um, at least, at least I'd say from maybe that sort of third or fourth generation on, um, where it was pitched as something that you could replace a computer lab with. Um, but also of course, part of Apple's huge through line in education, um, going back to Apple twos that, um, you, you ought to be able to do, uh, even more than you could in a traditional analog classroom with with the Apple technology. So that, that's a good resource. And uh, current uh, iPad-focused podcast now, also, uh, I believe also on Relay is Adapt, also with Federico, where, um, <laughs> which when it launched, I called it iPad by Wednesday, uh, because it's a challenge, challenge podcast. <laughs> um, and it comes out on, uh, on Wednesdays. <laughs> Um, and they are pushing the iPad to do things that, um, seem impossible to many people, uh, but are in one sense, exactly what it's designed for. So let's wrap up by talking a little bit about, um, the impact that 10 years of iPad has had as it has gotten into way, way many more people's hands, um, and has been used in all kinds of different applications. Yeah, and I want to lead off this section with a couple of immediate impacts and uh, kind of immediate reactions to the arrival of the iPad based on where I was and what I was doing. Um, I feel like I got some firsthand glimpses at uh, the developer side of it. Uh, I was working at Twitter on their API policy team at the time. And in the middle of April 2010, so like two weeks after the Wi-Fi only iPad was released and two weeks before the cellular iPad was released, Twitter held its first and I want to say only developer conference, Chirp. It's no F8 that Facebook Fate. Yeah, that Facebook does and I uh, did and maybe still does. Certainly no WWDC, but it was still a lot of fun and I, I had to be a part of it. Obviously, it was the nature of my work. Um. This was, I think, a year, maybe to the month after John Gruber had written on Daring Fireball his post called Twitter Clients Are a UI Design Playground. Um, the App Store had been around for a year and change, and it was seeming that whether it was iOS apps or web apps or, as he puts it, and uh, I had forgotten, Adobe Air apps, um, <laughs> anyone in whatever language or whatever target platform could make a Twitter client. 
at that time, Twitter's API and uh, and platform were a lot more open. <laughs> um, and the the list of features and functionality uh, was kind of set. And so it was really up to the developers and the designers how they would implement it and how they would structure it and how they would frame it. And um, I think that this really came into place because of it was a chirp was a developer conference. So of course we have client app developers there, Um, but also the iPad had just come out. And so I specifically remember Andrew stone, whose Twitter clients were called Twitter later. And he also uh, (laughs) was one of the early pioneers on making different versions of the same app available in the app store. One just for iPads, one for iPhones. I'm looking at the page now there's free pro iPad and Noya. And these icons are not very different. I think Noya was his uh, flat iOS 7 redesign, which had to be a separate app. But um, he had one of the first iPads and everyone mobbed him. And he was hard at work on what was going to be his iPad optimized version of a Twitter client. But there, but no discussion of iPad Twitter clients is complete without talking about Lauren Brichter's first version of Twitter for iPad. Again, the timing of all of this was incredible because Twitter acquired Lauren's company 8-Bits just before Chirp, which was a real bad move in hindsight because as we're inviting all these developers in to talk about the future and the state of the platform, we make a move that seems like we might be cannibalizing all their business. (laughs) Actually, Tweety's ours now. Yeah. Don't worry, we'll choke it to death slowly. Yeah, and, and so like... They are just now, as we record, getting back into uh, a version of Twitter for iPad that's not just a blown up phone interface with a lot of white space. And everybody hates it. But it's really worth going back and uh, we'll link to Federico's review of Twitter for iPad at Mac Stories, how Lauren got the very first implementation of Twitter for iPad so right and like kind of hot on the heels of the uh the Chirp developer conference that used sliding panes and a concept of hierarchy, both visually and navigationally, that really has not been matched. Certainly after he left and they kind of took it over by committee, uh, that went out the window. All of that is to say, uh, I totally agreed with Gruber's take that Twitter was at the time the design playground for developers. And, uh, It just so happened that this whole new platform launched right at the height of that, the iPad, and I got to witness the design people playing on the design playground firsthand. And that was my kind of first experience to iPad in general. So I felt like I was really fortunate to be at this kind of nexus of all these things happening at the same time. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And as we know, (laughs) yeah, you're right. Those were important things. Uh, Lauren Brichter's work definitely fed back into the iOS paradigm writ large. I mean, for crying out loud, he invented pull to refresh. Exactly. He's on the patent. Another developer who I worked alongside with, kind of, you know, I wasn't working on the client app, was Joe Hewitt, who we mentioned in our iPhone episode about like first iPhone apps. Um, Joe was initially a one-man team responsible for Facebook, for iOS, Facebook for mobile, rather, Apple mobile platforms. And his initial reaction to the iPad, like after the keynote, is very positive. And another thing that's like, man, in hindsight, this company squandered what this guy was doing. Um, Because he talks about how uh, Facebook for the iPhone 
was great. Um, it was great to have a native app instead of the a, a web app saved to the home screen as a bookmark. Um, but having kind of the desktop space to do a native experience that takes advantage of multi-touch and the kind of the direct connection that Steve Jobs on the leather chair was all about really had him excited for making Facebook for iPad. And again, a big part of that was being able to use the native SDK, native platform paradigms, et cetera. Um, and just a couple years after that, uh, Joe is out of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg does his famous, we're pivoting all of our mobile strategy to HTML5 so we can update more quickly and be more nimble, which backfired and they lost you know, two or three years until they could get back into true native experiences and now they make react and react is you know like the javascript wrapper around a native whatever (laughs) all that's to say we'll put a link to uh the internet archive of uh joe hewitt's blog which was very positive also john gruber's review of the original ipad from april not directly after the keynote um has a a very cool beginning where he says um you know, a, a lot of people leading up to the keynote announcement were thinking of the iPad as Apple's vision for the future of personal computing. And there are kind of two camps coming out of that. Some people are disappointed because it's just a big iPod touch. Some people are excited because it's just a big iPod touch. Either way, you know, from the, the viewpoint of this is the future of personal computing. And he says he's in the second camp. And I think that that entire sentiment is exactly right. Um, I think... The future of personal computing is uh, is touch. It's it's direct manipulation. Maybe in the future we'll all be talking to cylinders or have glasses, but personal computing right now is probably dominantly the smartphone and tablets close behind. But I think this shows that you know if you want to have a do everything device, as we were just talking about uh, Federico's <laughs> iPad by Wednesday, you know you you need the the bigger form factor. So uh, I think that framing of it. You know, a just just a big iPod touch is the future of personal computing. And John was excited about that. It was a really good way to lead in the review of the initial iPad. Well, you know what an iPod touch couldn't do? And neither could an iPad. Couldn't run Flash, could it? Nope. And boy, this this went back and forth for about three months because one of the things that was a big selling point big focus in the keynote was that you had the full web experience on iPad, which I think that now that we're at iPad OS 13, we're, we're pretty much there. It's, it's been a decade in coming around even to the full web experience, but people were quick to jump on it and say, but wait, but wait, the full web experience requires flash. Have you never been to a restaurant? (laughs) It's interesting, actually. I noticed this. Um, I guess, Brian, you had put this link to just a contextless image in our in our outline, and then I saw it go by as I was watching the keynote, uh, where uh, Steve Jobs is reading the New York Times and like very very unscripted in that part of the demo. He's like he's like I'm going to load the New York Times. I don't know what's on there today. It's just the New York Times. I'm going to start looking at articles. This one looks interesting. And it's got, of course, like all the like banner ad cruft because we're we're a long way from content blockers and things like that. Um, and on one of the pages, there's just a big old chunk, which I presume was going to be an ad. So in one respect, great. <laughs> um, 
where there's just a big blank spot because that was flash content. And it's got this little uh, little plug-in icon that's like a Lego brick with question marks on the side. Mm-hmm. And that means don't know how to display this. Um, and that was extremely prevalent on the iOS browsing experience for a while. And as I said, people went back and forth. Steve, you said that we will get the full experience, but we need Flash. Everybody needs Flash. Of course, Flash is garbage, however. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, slow security risks. All of the reasons that Apple didn't put it on the iPad were valid. And of course, this culminated in, on April 29, just a few months after, well, actually, just like a month after the actual release of the device. Right, like on the eve of the cellular release. Yeah, came one of Steve Jobs' famous, famous missives, Bots on Flash, which we will link to live on Apple's website because we still can. Um, I think this came up a couple months ago. I think it was on Connected. They had found some particularly old page on Apple.com and they sent people on a scavenger hunt to find the oldest page that they could find that was still at its original URL on apple.com. This was my entry because it's a, it's a classic. Um, I don't think this is ever going to go away. Uh, as long as apple.com exists, thoughts on flash will exist. Uh, just outlining all the reasons that the full web really didn't need flash. And it was bold at the time because it was true. If you wanted to get the menu of your local Chinese restaurant, chances were you couldn't on an iPad because it was embedded in a completely unnecessary flash layer. Um, but Apple stood firm. And here we are, 10 years later, and nothing uses flash. It's incredible. I think it's scheduled to be officially deprecated by Adobe in this calendar year, 2020. Yes. This is actually an article from Microsoft Support. Uh, Flash will be completely removed from all browsers by December 31, 2020. But, man, it's it's hard to believe that without the success of the iPad, but even more so the, the iPhone browsing experience, but the the fact that those were so closely connected together and believed so strongly in that principle that there shouldn't be two versions of the web for iOS or other mobile devices and desktop or notebook devices. There's just one web and everybody has to access the same web. And the fact that the iOS platform became so prominent is, I mean, I don't see any other cause Well, except for maybe some of the security issues. But it seems to me that Steve Jobs putting his foot in the ground really was the reason that it took 10 years, 11 years, but Flash will be no more. And one final issue we want to discuss that is a direct link to the original iPad and the events of the keynote that day is the Apple eBook antitrust case. And admittedly, this has been going on in various appeals and escalations for a couple of years. And every time it comes up in the news, I don't even read the takes on it. I skim the headlines and I think it's ridiculous that Apple is the target of this case when Amazon is the clear market leader, maybe even pushing 
the point of a monopoly on the ebook market, but Apple is the one uh, targeted in the lawsuit. So uh, there's a Wikipedia summary article that, you know, I'm pretty much just going to read verbatim from right now. And I did not realize that uh, it kind of all stems back or one crucial piece of evidence seems to be this kind of offhand remark from Steve Jobs. Because, of course, during the keynote, he doesn't just go through the interface and the buying and reading experience of the iBooks app and the iBooks store, but he has to mention all of the major book publishers who are in on it. You know, they've, they've struck deals with Apple, just as Apple always did with the, the music labels and TV and movie studios. They did the same due diligence. Eddie Q's probably walking in there in an untucked shirt uh, to get the deals with book publishers. And so the first uh, piece of information related to this case is as follows. On the day of the launch, Jobs was asked by a reporter why people would pay $14.99 for a book on the iBook store when they could purchase it for $9.99 from Amazon. In response, Jobs stated that the price will be the same. Publishers are actually withholding their books from Amazon because they are not happy. And by stating this, Jobs acknowledged his understanding that the publishers would raise ebook prices and that Apple would not have to face any competition from Amazon on price. That's the basis for a lawsuit. Right. So this all falls under the the purview of antitrust law. And I think that for most people, they think that means monopolies, but there's like different parts of antitrust law. And this is the one where even if you're not a monopoly, you're not allowed to collude with other companies to artificially raise prices so that people can't actually get a fair deal for some goods that they want to purchase. So a brief timeline of major events in this case. Uh, In July 2013, in the U.S. District Court, Apple was found guilty of conspiring to raise the price of e-books, and a trial was scheduled for the following year to determine the damages. Then in June 2014, Apple settled out of court and also appealed the ruling. And then another year later, in June 2015, at the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals by a two-to-one vote, uh, it was basically upheld with the initial ruling that Apple had conspired to uh, fix the price of ebooks, and in doing so violated federal antitrust law. Once again, Apple appealed. <laughs> Almost another year later, in March of 2016, the Supreme Court declined to hear the appeal that it cons- that Apple conspired to fix the price of ebooks and the previous decision stand. And Apple was ordered to pay $450 million in damages. Which is not a lot of Apple's total money, but is probably a a large amount of the money that they made from selling books. Oh, yeah, for sure. The whole irony of this antitrust case is, like I said, there are these different facets of antitrust. And here it's this price-fixing scheme that Apple was uh, found to be engaging in. And the entire result of it is that Apple's books, iBook store has not been very successful. And therefore, Amazon has practically a monopoly on, on the ebook market, which is a different antitrust problem. It's like antitrust whack-a-mole. It's like <laughs> you didn't solve anything. <laughs> and of course, there's, you know, a whole breadth of 
different industries and lifestyles that the iPad has had an impact on. And, you know, we could fill many more hours talking about what its effect has been over these last 10 years. But uh, I think we're going to close our discussion on the iPad at 10 years from that kind of broad view with (laughs) that antitrust case and uh, move on to closing out this episode with some, some personal viewpoints and some personal business. Yeah, I thought we should talk about uh, our own iPads, where we started with the iPad and maybe where we are now. So I did not have an original iPad. I don't even know if I've ever held an original iPad. Um, I did not have an iPad 2, but I got in on the third generation. So I I purchased it right at the launch because at that point I was in my third year in grad school. And what do you do when you're a grad student but read tons and tons of articles and mark them up that are all in PDF format? And so I was extremely excited for the retina screen of the third generation because I wasn't, I had actually considered the iPad before that, but I didn't want to, I I had an iPhone 4 (laughs) and I didn't want to go back to a non-retina screen, especially when my number one purpose for getting the device was reading. You know, having seen the promise of retina in the phone, I'm like, it's going to be coming sooner or later. And the answer was sooner, as we discussed, even though that had some problems. Um, But I jumped right on that. Um, And uh, we'll link to my extremely excited tweets from when I first got it. Um, my direct quote is so many pixels. <laughs> I just have a picture of the, the, the packaging before I unboxed it. I said, there are so many pixels in this box. And it's true. Like it was the, it was the highest resolution display that you could fit in a box and ship across the world. <laughs> and it showed up in my kitchen and I was, uh, extremely happy with it. Um, that iPad was in service for, all of my grad school career uh, eventually got replaced with uh, with an early small size uh, iPad Pro, which is still my main iPad. Uh, and the third gen, actually, I just passed it along to a friend. You know, it had been sitting in a box in my closet for years, doing absolutely nothing. Um, and a friend was looking for a device that they could run a square register on uh, for doing craft fairs and stuff. Um, And I'm like, well, I've got this iPad. It works perfectly fine. Booted it up, um, found some stuff that was, you know, not 100% backed up from there. Like, remember, there was a huge wave of drawing applications even Mm -hmm. before the pencil. Um, Found a bunch of, like, silly doodles I had made in the app called Paper, was like paper by 53 or something. Yeah. Now owned by WeTransfer. How far we've come. Uh, speaking of, I was able to um, somehow export the the files and get them get them transferred over to my Mac. Uh, you know, no airdrop on that thing. <laughs> None of my email accounts worked anymore. It was it was a little bit of a Rube Goldberg machine to uh, actually get the th- those last pieces of data off there, but you know, Wiped it, set it up as a new iPad. It maxed out at uh, iOS 9, I think. But Square knows that like 
they have old devices like that running. And so even their current version of their, their app runs on iOS 9. And uh, that, that iPad, which is now, what, eight years old, is, uh, is back in action, living a happy life. Do you know which hardware interface your friend is using to capture credit cards? Is it the headphone jack credit card reader? Oh, almost certainly. Yeah, I know they're not like super secure. They're not what they want to support anymore, but uh, but it still functions. I think they've put some restrictions in place where like if there's fraud, it's it's on the the users. It's the user's fault if you're using one of those old readers, but that's unlikely. So what was your first iPad experience apart from the the conference that you went to? Yeah, with with so many iPad ones. Uh, I have never owned a an iPad like personally that I paid for and, and kept, you know, in, in my house or in my apartment. Uh, but the first iPad that I took home from work uh, long term was the first generation mini, which did not have a retina screen. Um, but yeah, for over six years, like I guess six and a half years, I worked for a small startup who made mobile apps and their primary target was the iPad from day one. I think even the first version of the app that shipped to the app store was not a universal app. It was just for iPad class devices. And so many things that we've talked about here today were, were big uh, influences like, um, like the wood grain bookshelf. Uh, I think we straight up copied, uh, you know, doing our own wood grain, of course, but, but for <laughs> uh, uh, like a feature where PDFs had to be stored and accessed, they were presented like uh, a wooden bookshelf of books. Well, that was the thing where, you know, Apple adopted it as something in a first party app. And it's almost like blessing it as saying, this is an appropriate interface paradigm for this new device. So, of course, everybody started designing shelves. And the uh, the first mini was, I think, the first iPad named an iPad that didn't have the 9.7 inch screen. So that was a big focus for a while of testing like is everything still usable? Are touch targets still appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I got to take that one home. And then I think I I got to take our company mini home like maybe halfway through its uh, product cycle because very soon after, I think just you know in its second year as a product line, the mini got a retina screen, which we promptly bought because those are better. And I got to take that one home. And um, we also immediately bought the very first 12.9 inch Pro. And I remember when that arrived at my boss's house and she uh, took it out of the box like, this seems too big. (laughs) This seems too big to work as an iPad. And it was another like sprint to uh, redo the interface to take advantage of all the extra pixels (laughs) instead of making sure touch targets and everything fit on a smaller screen. Constantly moving target. Yeah, I guess the, the most time I've spent with an iPad personally has been the mini size, whether retina or not. So no personal iPad in your home at the moment? No, no personal iPad in my home at the moment. I am still searching for whether it's uh, something from Federico's Adapt podcast or something that Steve quoted when he was doing that three column approach. I've got my smartphone, which I use all the time in the left column. I've got a MacBook Air, which I use all the time in the right column. And I still haven't found that, that sweet spot that an iPad is best suited for in the middle column. And for some people, that's okay. (laughs) But anyway, I think that is a good place to wrap it up. Obviously, the iPad has found many, many fans around the world and has progressed incredibly in 
in 10 years. And I think it's, uh, I think it's safe to say that there will be at least another decade of iPad. Oh yeah. Anyway, that wraps up this episode of Simple Beep. And as we mentioned on our last episode, that rep is going to wrap up our main run of Simple Beep. Mm-hmm. We said we've been doing the show for over five years and we thought that celebrating a decade of iPad was a really fitting place to leave off for the time being. So that is to say there will not be a February episode of Simple Beep, but that doesn't mean that we're going away forever. Um, definitely staying active over on our Twitter account at simple underscore beep. And Brian and I are also on Twitter. Uh, if you've been listening for, for five years, you probably already follow us and, and we appreciate that. But if you don't and you'd like to start now, my Twitter handle is bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at E Cormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. So like we said, thank you to all of you who have been listening over the past several years. Uh, we will not be going away. Just uh, just this feed will go dormant for the time being. Uh, Brian and I are actually getting together. We're doing sort of a uh, simple beep corporate retreat. <laughs> to Florida. Uh, next month. To uh, to figure out what's coming next, you know, this is not the absolute last that you will hear from us, and we hope that we will have some uh, exciting new things to share, maybe later this year, maybe in the future. Uh, I think, though, you know, if you have been a fan of the show, uh, don't delete it out of your podcast app. Uh, if nothing else, we'll be back in 2024 for 10 years of Apple Watch. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> it's coming right up. We got to prepare. Oh no. <laughs> Um, so before we sign off, anything, uh, that you'd like to add, Brian? Uh, just as it relates to the two of us and this show, I know that being users of Apple products and specifically the Mac all the way back when we were, I don't know, we met each other in first grade kindergarten and, uh, whether through school or eventually at home, it's been a part of our identity to, you know, in our formative years, use the Mac. So just to piggyback on what you said even if we're not talking about it in some kind of public forum, uh, it'll continue to be a part of the way that we experience uh, technology. It's going to be through that lens of using Apple products now, and we were using Apple products back then. Uh, so yeah, we'll always be around to talk about that type of stuff. Right. And like we say at the top of every episode, you know, we've done this show about the history of Apple and the Mac community. And you know, we've gotten to the point where we think that we've covered all of the history of Apple that uh, is really useful for us to have these kind of discussions about. And we are glad that people have enjoyed it. And we think that it's a really good resource. And we're going to you know, keep it around for uh, as long as we can. Uh, so our our podcast feed, our website is is definitely staying up. Uh, so, uh, in the future, you know, if, if, if something comes up and you think, oh yeah, that topic, I wonder, I wonder if it was, uh, if it was covered or if, or I need a resource on some particular piece of Apple history, you know, go to our episodes page. That's what I do <laughs> at this point Yeah, is when something comes up, I go to our episodes page and, and see what we've, what we've said about it. And even if you don't have the time to listen to an episode, uh, you know, we, we have all of those links available as well, which, um, we hope will remain a really great resource into the future. So continue to visit simplebeep.com. 
Anything else before we sign off for this time? No, I, I we always defer to you on that one. So whatever you've got cooked up. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing special. You know, obviously I won't say uh, uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, well, we, we will, though. We'll see you next time. We just don't know when the next time is. But again, uh, we're really happy to celebrate these milestones. And thanks again for listening to Simple Beep. <laughs>